0: Welcome to the latest episode of the Philosophy Exchange podcast. Today I'm here with Lorenzo and Cecily. Cecily is a third-year PhD student at the London School of Economics who has recently published a paper on dreaming, imagery, and aphantasia. In this short PhD interview today, Lorenzo and I are going to ask Cecily about her work and life as a philosophy PhD.
1: So, Cecily, thank you for coming today. We're really, really happy to have you here, and we're really really interested in the topic that you have discussed in your recent publication. It's a really cool topic and in general, the paper I really like that is really precise and really well organized so why don't we start like with you telling us a little bit how you arrived to this topic, why you're interested in this particular field of philosophy? You go
2: okay, great, so yeah, thanks for having me um so my interest in dreaming stems from grad school where I was taking a graduate seminar on the nature of dreaming and wakefulness and What initially interested me about dreaming was the question of why we dream from an evolutionary perspective. So in my undergrad, I've been doing a lot of thinking about consciousness. Uh, In particular, I was interested in this puzzle question about why consciousness had evolved, right? Particularly given that a lot of conscious processes seem to be possible um, or to be able to run online uh, unconsciously. So from this evolutionary perspective, I was interested in the question of how dreaming fit into this picture, right? And there seemed to be kind of further puzzle about dreaming in this context, right? So what could possibly uh, a conscious state, which was totally cut off from the world, do for organisms? And thinking about this question naturally led me to the question of what dreaming is um, and what dream imagery involves, right? Which is the question which I'm engaged in in this paper.
0: Awesome, thank you. Do you want to say something?
1: <laughs> yes, I had a question. And yeah. uh, just about the relation between consciousness and dreaming really fast. Because I remember from really informal studying that he did many years ago was that in a certain sense, when we are dreaming, we have some kind of mental brain activities that are really similar to the brain activities that we exhibit when we are awake. And so in a certain sense, they should be connected, at least from scientific uh, observation. But maybe you can say something more about the connection or what, what you think there is, if there is a connection or something like interesting in this uh, comparison between dreams and consciousness.
2: Yeah, so I think there is a close connection, um, primarily because dreaming is a conscious state, which happens when you're asleep. Right. So... I guess in terms of the evolutionary function of consciousness, that was exactly the sort of route that I was going down. Right. So given that dreaming is a conscious state and a kind of salient one that occurs regularly in organisms like us, um, I thought that thinking more about the the nature of dreaming and what dreaming involves might shed light on the question of what the function of consciousness is or was and um, what consciousness is more generally.
1: That's really helpful. Thank you
0: could you summarize your main thesis um, of the paper in like two sentences for, for the people who listen to this podcast?
2: Yeah, so in the paper, I argue firstly that um, dream reports of subjects with um, aphantasia, so this is a mental imagery condition in which subjects lack or um, have a reduced capacity for visual mental imagery, uh, Challenge. Like provide an empirical challenge to the view that dreams involve imagination, what's known as the imagination model of dreaming. And second, I argue that this challenge can be overcome um, if one rejects the claim that imaginative experiences are necessarily agentive, and this is a claim which is common to existing imagination models of dreaming, and instead endorses uh, endorse a view on which dreaming involves inactive or involuntary imagination, which is not under an agent's control.
0: So, you mentioned the condition called aphantasia. What is aphantasia and how is it measured?
2: Yeah, so um, there's a bit of discussion, um, I guess, in both philosophy and cognitive science about how to um, precisely characterize or operationalize aphantasia. Uh, But generally, a sort of uncontroversial starting point is uh, to characterize aphantasia in terms of a lack or absence of visual mental imagery or a reduced, significantly reduced capacity for visual mental images. And this is measured using what's known as the VVIQ, which is the Vividness of Visual Imagery Questionnaire. And this asks subjects basically to form mental images and report their experiences about those images. So the maximum score that you can get on the VVIQ is 80, and the minimum score is 16. And aphantasia is usually characterized by a range of scores on uh, the VBIQ from 16, so the, the lowest score, to around 25. Um, and you can find the VBIQ online. So um, I think it's on the aphantasia network. So if you're uh, curious about your own mental imagery and how it compares
0: to others, you can find this pretty easily.
1: I would surely take it now. I'm really...
0: Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> going down on my notes first thing i'm going to do yeah. after this interview it's it's really
1: easy to find okay that 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 is really fascinating so just to make a general framework for the audience when we are talking about the imagination model of dreaming we are talking about a model that is in contrast with the traditional one or the oldest one that is like connecting dreams and hallucinations or and instead, this new model, the imagination model that has been proposed, you quote the author Ichikawa in your article, is saying, no, it's totally different. Uh, dreaming is actually a kind of imagination. And you're using the case of Aphantasia to support your criticism to Ichikawa uh, imagination model. So maybe you can explain a little bit more how Aphantasia enters in the debate about dreaming.
2: Yeah, so I initially had the idea um, for the paper, or um, which I guess the main idea is to bring uh, considerations about aphantasia, which are relatively new, um, to bear on the on the debate about what the nature of dreaming. So I, I initially had this this idea, right, because I was aware of of the of the condition, right. I've been um, to a conference, I think, uh, the summer before I took the seminar, and it was on aphantasia. But the relevance to the to the dream debate so uh, was primarily from considering Ichikawa's arguments in his paper Imagination and Dreaming, where he sets out the imagination model. And in that paper, he had some arguments, uh, which were I guess divided into two sorts of arguments, the first of which were philosophical or conceptual considerations in favor of the imagination model, and the second of which were empirical arguments. So here he was looking at work from studies by david folks on the dream development in children uh, and also some from soames where he uh, looked at the sort of neuropathology of dreaming so what happened in cases where individuals report having disturbances in their dreams for example they may report having a lack of dream visual imagery or something like that and what this meant for theories of dreaming so within this context i thought oh wouldn't it be interesting and useful to see what happens to the dreams of those who lack imagination. And that's how I yeah, came to the idea. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, so the the point is to break a little bit the correlation between the normal kind of activity of imagination of people and the uh, dream activity that we have when we sleep. So Ichikawa says they are similar, they go together. And you say, well, if you see aphantasia people, actually, they can dream. They can report dreams. and uh, But they lack the ability of imagining, of creating mental imagery in their head when they awake. So, yeah, that's really interesting because you're using an empirical case, a medical scenario, to, in a certain sense, contradict a philosophical thesis. So... um As we already mentioned, in a certain sense here, we have a really nice synergy between science and uh, philosophy, because there are there is a lot of conceptual work from the philosophical perspective. At the same time, we are looking at the um, empirical cases, the observations that scientists are doing in the field. And so we were wondering what is the impact of your philosophical work on the dream research field and or what you expect, what you hope that you will achieve also outside of philosophy and in the scientific debate?
2: So yeah, I think there are kind of two straightforward ways in which philosophical work of which uh, this paper is an instance can impact dream science and be useful to scientists working in empirical research on dreaming. So first I think philosophical work can um, work uh, towards what people often call armchair science so uh, the aim here is to propose new hypotheses uh, which can be tested by empirical research later right and suggest new ways of testing hypotheses which already exist and this is what i do at the end of the paper for example a second way uh, which i think is a bit broader i think philosophical work can impact dream science by helping to clarify and make more precise the phenomenon which dream science is trying to explain right so in the case of of dream science um, philosophers can think how should we operationalize dreaming what what is dreaming and how can we make it this phenomenon clearer in order to further scientific research Um, and this is a question which I'm I've been thinking about more recently and in more recent research
0: so would you say that you're a philosopher first or a scientist first
2: so, I would definitely say that I would be a philosopher first, so while I think there's a lot that philosophy um, can contribute to empirical science, um like I just mentioned, um and I think that in in some sense philosophy is continuous with science in many respects, right and I think dreaming philosophical work on dreaming is a good example here, I think in general that philosophy um, that it's correct to say that philosophy is an autonomous discipline, both in the sense that it has distinctive methods, right, that it has kind of non-empirical research methods, but also um, in some cases, a distinctive set of questions. So while in the case of dreaming, I think there's a shared question um, between philosophy and empirical science, right, which is what, what is dreaming and what does it consist in? I think there's a further set of questions which uh, philosophers are typically engaged in when they're talking about dreaming. Right. For example, whether the possibility that we could be dreaming undermines um, the knowledge that we typically take ourselves to have about the external world. And these are questions which don't seem to be of interest to empirical researchers on, who are working on dreaming.
0: And I think this kind of I guess, like, maybe, maybe of interest, but it, it often seems like people don't don't have the time to, to think about it. So I, I love that you you have this um, interaction between like philosophers and scientists. To really work on on all perspectives of the the same problem, or like different perspectives at least, maybe not all.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I think that I think that's right that they are probably interested in them, but um, don't really have the <laughs> the focus or the or the time to to consider them, right? Um, and I think I I do think it's important that despite having sort of distinct research questions, I think that it's important that philosophers do engage heavily with research,
0: um, yeah. yeah, definitely. Maybe yeah. that's a sort of necessary
2: um, requirement of entering the LSE.
1: <laughs> let see, <laughs> it mirrors the philosophical uh, spirit of your, of your investigation, this bird-eye view on, on the problem. So looking at different perspectives, different attitudes and research programs and putting them together. At least from my, perspective, from my perspective as a philosopher, I consider it really like a philosophical attitude instead of like specializing on one really single, specific, detailed question. And uh, I think it's really fascinating. And you said that these questions are interesting. I would say that are also really cool. So, yeah, uh, I'm really, really, really uh, happy to discuss about them. Yes, Johanna.
0: Great. That was really interesting. Thank you for taking your time to do this interview with us and explaining your work a little bit to us. So for people who are interested in your field, where would you recommend um, to start reading? Or what are you reading right now?
2: Yeah, so I think my my favourite sort of introductory or overview paper is John Sitton's chapter, Dreaming, which you can find online. For the imagination model of dreaming, Jonathan nitchik Dreaming and Imagination is the sort of classic statement of the imagination view. And Jennifer Vint's book, Dreaming, is a really good and detailed survey of the entire field, which covers a lot of philosophical ground and also helpfully summarises a lot of the empirical literature on dreaming. Right now, I'm reading a Frontiers in Psychology um, on lucid dreaming.
1: That seems really interesting. What is it like in two words, a lucid dream?
2: Dreams in which the
0: subject is aware that they're dreaming.
1: Okay, really cool. Thank you. Yeah. There, there
0: some, I've heard some theories that actually, uh, that you can uh, force yourself to dream lucidly or like you can train yourself. Yeah. Would you subscribe to that claim?
2: Yes, it looks empirically plausible. I actually mentioned it in the paper
1: um so inception is reality actually so you can train to like navigate your dreams in a more lucid way yes yeah cool. yeah
2: so you can i think i've tried a bit of it but it's it takes i think it takes a long time um and so basically you can so if you're not a natural lucid dreamer then you can um do lots of i think it's like meditative train meditative training Um uh, where you um start to have more control over your dreams and things like that
1: that's so cool i know that i sound like a child that is discovering science but it's like really it
2: cool. yeah. i remember telling someone that i worked on that and they were like wow i don't really work on that that's a stretch but like i was like, yeah. I was like that that is something that you know i mentioned in a paper."
0: yeah and it's it's good to to tell people who don't have any idea of like philosophy and science to 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 give them the impression that what you work on is interesting and, and and helpful because often as philosophers I feel like you struggle to like explain like what you're actually working on to people and why it's interesting so I guess when you mentioned lucid dreaming people are like wow that sounds so cool yeah just a nice fact sadly I don't work <laughs> on that you really know
1: yeah it's unfortunate that we have to close the podcast we we could stay another like good hour talking about these topics. Thank you again Cecilia. Thank you very much for coming today. It was super it was a beautiful discussion. I really liked it Thank you
0: Thank, Thank you very everyone. much
1: well for people listening to us you can find us at philosophyexchange.org and with other episodes of the philosophy exchange podcast and uh, you can find us on on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, we hope to have you also for the next coming episodes. Cheers, guys. And thank you again.